uh, as we're kicking off, we're, we're doing it. I don't do very many standalone sermons, uh, but this is one. And uh, I'm doing this. This is a, a rare thing. It comes actually from a question that somebody asked, and somebody said, you know what, you need to preach a sermon on that. And I thought about it and thought, you know what, he's right. So this comes from Rod Price. This is the only actual known photo of Rod Price that I could find. But uh, Rod Price was, it's, that's not, that's not Rod. Or is that? Did you post that? Oh my goodness, that's Rod Price. Anyway, so we, Rod, I, uh, I had a problem in my house. My porch was doing a little bit of sagging. Um, that's, that's not my house. My problem is actually a little more advanced than that. But uh, I had, the, the supports were separating from the roof, you know, and I was like, that's, I mean, I'm no expert. But I don't think that's good. So I called an expert and I said, Rod, can you help me out? And he said, well, yeah. I can. You know, so he came over with a hydraulic jack, uh, which, you know, that can lift your house. That was amazing. Uh, it actually jacked up the porch and then we dug it out. I say we. I watched Rod dig it out. Uh, I moved a shovel a couple of times. Anyway, we sat and we, we talked for a while. And while we were talking, uh, spiritual things came up. Because uh, Rod's a spiritual guy. He's a great guy. If you don't know Rod, you need to. Um, he's very introverted and he hates the fact that I just said that. But anyway, uh, Rod, Rod was talking to me about you know, a sermon I had recently preached about not being judgmental. And he said, you know, how do I avoid judging people? Because the thing is, you know, I, I look at folks and I, I look at ways of life and, and, and I, I want to obey Jesus, don't you? I, I don't want to disobey. And he point blank says... Judge not, or you'll be judged. I don't want to do that. So how do I do this? And we talked about it for a while, and uh, one of Jesus' parables came up. Uh, the parable, it's in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. Do you know this one? The king's got eight talents, and he divides it up according to the ability of the people. So he gives this person five talents, and this person two talents, and this person one talent. And the thing is, in the parable... You can see how the king has distributed the abilities among the people. You can see that. But in life, you can't. You can't see how, the, how what God has given is distributed. And what the parable points to is that the way we're going to be judged is not based on the num- number of talents we've got, but based on what we did with what we had. So you and I might be looking at somebody and we might say, you know, that person has got their life together, man. They've really got their doctrine clean. You know, they've got the right rituals in place. They've, they've got the right behaviors in place. You go to church right. Their morality is cleaned up and they don't seem to have any challenges. Therefore, I'm certain that person is going to heaven. And meanwhile, God's looking at them and going, slacker, what's your deal? I expect more of you. You have been given much. But you're not doing anything with it. You sit there with your lifelong third generation, fifth generation church membership and you're sitting on a pew letting the church die. What are you doing? But we're all going, yay, rah! That person's clearly going to heaven. Maybe, maybe not. Meanwhile, we might look at somebody else and see you know, a life that is just chaotic and messy. But you don't know what they started with. And the person might have all kinds of moral challenges that have never entered into your life. And yet they stand so far beyond anybody you know. And you can't possibly see that. 
And so you, you, heaven, meanwhile, is just cheering for that person, going, look at this. And God is going, have you seen my son? And the world is going, what, you mean the person in jail? And how many times was Paul in jail? You know, this world has very different standards, different things. And remember when they chose David, you look at the outside, but God judges the heart. I mean, this is why we are ill-equipped to do any judging. You cannot look at a person from the outside and say, oh, well, wait a minute, though. It's got to do with doctrine. And I can look at their messy doctrine. Folks, Satan has perfect doctrine. He knows spiritual reality better than you ever will until you were resurrected. It's doing him no good at all. It's doing him no good at all. We are just not in a place where we can judge. C.S. Lewis once says, that is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he's done with it. He's commenting on the talents there, right? C.S. Lewis has a picture of Judgment Day. And he says, you know, that basically we will all stand before God on Judgment Day with everything that was given to us stripped away. And only what we genuinely are will be there. So if you grew up in church, you've got a whole lot of like standing ahead of the crowd. But that's not yours. That's the five talents given to you. Do you have five more? What did you do with it? And so all that stuff is going to fall away and who you genuinely are, the person you were before God, becomes revealed. Everyone will see it. In the meantime, the, the, the things that might be detriments you know, will fall away. And what the person was fighting against, you don't know how far down the scale they started. They might only be at a, like a negative eight. But were it not for Christ Jesus, they would be at a negative 5,000. You don't know. We're just not equipped. And it will all drop away. In Judgment Day, we will be like, yeah, God's right. I can see that. And so we don't judge one another. We simply throw ourselves into the hands of God. That got me studying. He said, you, you, ought, to, you ought to do a sermon on this. And so I started looking into this. And as I was prepping for the sermon, I realized that there's, there's more to say. So if it's okay, I'm not done. Uh, <laughs> Matthew puts in front of us in his gospel. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to skip over that. Matthew puts in front of us in his gospel two ways. Two different ways of approaching God. He does this through a slow build of the hostility of the other way. Okay? All the other gospels, Jesus gets into conflicts really early. In the gospel of Luke, it's in chapter 2. He's already having controversies and arguments with people really early in the Gospel. But in Matthew's Gospel, I'm pretty sure that the first conflict story, not the first conflict, because Jesus already picked a few fights. You know, he says things like, your righteousness has got to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, that probably wasn't received with, oh, yeah. You know, they were probably a little bit troubled by that. But, but the first conflict story doesn't show up until like chapter 14. Matthew builds it slowly. What is he doing? Well, the first thing he's doing as he, as he starts out his gospel is he's presenting a new way to be Jewish. A new way to be under Messiah Jesus. And so Jesus steps in front of you with this amazing teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus saying, this is my way. That's what we've been looking at this year. This call to the way of Jesus. This is what that looks like. It's set in contrast with another way. 
by Matthew 23, the fight is on, and Jesus comes out of the shadows and says, let me make this clear. Woe to them, because their way is not working for them. You know, they they love to sit on Moses' seat, and you should do what they tell you, but don't do what they do, because they are hypocrites. They are false. They clean the outside, but inside they're filled with all kinds of foul stuff. They're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside are dead men's bones, which to a Jewish mind, it's like, oh, it's totally unclean. He's like, yes, exactly. Because that's what their way gets you. Now, realize that everybody who ever read Matthew's Gospel, this is written to Jewish people, they would have assumed we're people of God. That's who and what we are. So these two ways are designed to cut into people who believe that they are in the kingdom of God. Folks, that's you and I. Us religious Christian folks. Because these two ways are still available. The one way is Jesus' discipleship way that has to do with trusting in God for your righteousness. That has to do... And I don't mean just trusting in the cross... I mean trusting in the Holy Spirit's presence in you so that the cross, when it's applied to you, you actually become a different person. You become obedient to the teachings of Jesus. You live a disciple's life. After all, at the end of it all, when He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me, now go make disciples. Not go dunk people in water and teach them the right rituals and make sure they sit in a pew. All that stuff's going to be included in discipleship. Worship's definitely a part of it. But it's a disciple's life, a life of obedience to the teachings of Jesus. That's the way. And then there's the other way, which is kind of sin management. You're trying really hard to obey the law. And the biggest difference between the two ways is what Jesus has got to say about God and what the Pharisees do. Because what the Pharisees are going to tell you is that God, He's dangerous. He's kind of bad. And you need to make sure that you are correctly obedient or He's going to zap you. Whereas Jesus is saying, God is your safety. Run to Him. You spend time with Him. Make sure that your prayer is authentic. That you are genuinely seeking Him out. Because otherwise you get no reward. You want to be near to Jesus. Don't fake people out with your fasting. Don't even let them know you're doing it. Be with God, and God will reward you. And so God's way, Jesus' way, is this trust in God kind of way. And the Pharisees' way, they're going to be like, hey, we're the righteous ones because we've cleaned up the outside. But inside, the heart still wants all that nastiness. You just don't let it have what it has. And they're counting on a reward for that. And Jesus is saying, no. So you've got a path diverging in the woods. And Matthew has been pushing us. And by this time, by chapter 25, where that parable comes from, it's time to make a choice. You're either with the Pharisees or Jesus. The power to do it is about to be unleashed in chapters 26-28. through How do we do Jesus' way? By Jesus' cross and by trusting in Jesus. But, at this point, He's taught everything He's going to teach except for the cross itself. He's saying, you need to make a choice. The entire chapter of chapter 25 is putting that choice in front of us. And it does it through three pictures. One of them is the one that Rod and I talked about. Let's work our way through those three pictures real quick, and we'll be done. So the first picture has to do with ten women who are getting ready for a wedding day. 
Okay? They go and they're, they're there to be a part of the celebration, to be a part of the party. And they've brought their lamps. And the, the bridegroom is delayed a long time. All of them have got lamps. You're supposed to have a lamp to get into the party. Right? They've all got their lamps. But only five of them brought oil. The other five didn't. So what is that about? It's two ways. Jesus brands the people without oil as foolish. It's the Pharisees that are the foolish ones who have cleaned up the outside. Notice they've got a lamp and the lamp is giving out light, but it's not enough. It's not through and through light. They aren't prepared for and And all of them fall asleep. All ten of them. You know, I, I suspect that means that all ten of them died. You know, the king is delayed in his coming. The bridegroom is delayed in his coming. And all ten of them die, and so the lamps keep burning while they sleep. And all of them run out of oil. But when the bridegroom finally shows up at about midnight, there's five of them who still have oil. Five of them, the other five don't. And they're like, ah, give, give us some of your oil. We can't get in without the lamp. And they're like, Hey, there won't be enough for us and you. You can't borrow this. Go instead and buy it. And while they're going to buy it, the bridegroom shows up. The door is shut. And when they show up, you know, I, I picture in my mind, I always picture the, the Wizard of Oz and the scene where the little guy opens the little window in the door. The bridegroom says, I don't know you. The door's shut. You can't get in. Now what's going on in that story? Well, you've got people who are prepared because they have oil. And there are people who don't. All of them appear to have a kind of righteousness, right? They've all got a light burning. But when death comes, their real resources are revealed. What they actually are. Now, folks, I will tell you that we are in the waiting period. And while when the bridegroom actually shows up, you can't share your righteousness with anybody. We've got oil the world needs. They're not ready. We have a mission rising out of this story. But the story is telling you, look, you either go Jesus' way, you live trusting God, you live loving God, drawing close to God and being empowered by God into a righteous way of life that will have a genuine reality to it. Not just a legal fiction so that when you die you get acquitted, but no, actual righteousness, goodness, growing up inside of you. Christians ought to be the best people on planet earth. And so this oil, that's the oil of the Spirit of God working in you. And are you ready with that or not? Or is your light something that will burn out? When the time for trial comes, the testing comes, the door is shut. Because you didn't get to go in. It's two ways. And then, uh, I mean, there comes a point where borrowed light won't work. Eventually it will be too late to prepare. That's the message coming to us. The reality is, it's heaven and hell here. And he's saying, you either get ready for this or you don't. The wise life is spent with this end in mind, with this knowledge that danger is very real, but hope is very real too. He's putting in front of us saying, are you going to follow Jesus? Because that's the way to get your oil. You can't go buy it when the bridegroom shows up. It's too late then. Work on your life now. Be with Jesus now. Which way are you choosing? The second picture is this one of the king who gives out the talents, right? And then he goes away for a really long time. And he gives five talents to one and three talents to one and one talent to one. 
Now, the, he distributes that according to each person's abilities. The Lord knows what you're capable of. And he's going to be fair when the time for judgment comes. Well, the king comes back and he demands an accounting of them. And the guy with five talents says, see, I've got five more. And the guy with two talents, see, I've got two more. And, so they, and each time he says, come on into the joy of your master. You've been faithful in the Lord, I'm going to put you over much. He's ready to share his delight and his joy with servants. Kings don't do that. What's expected of the guy is, all right, good, well done. Now go stand over there and when my cup gets empty, fill it. But the king's saying, come, enter into my joy. But then this guy shows up. And note the problem with this guy. You know, it, it isn't even, I don't think it's even that he buried it. It's how he assesses the king. Listen to this. He says, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, receive what's yours. What kind of guy does he think this king is? He thinks the king is kind of a jerk, doesn't he? You're a hard man, a bad person, then you go and take what isn't yours. I know that that's who you are. And so I'm afraid of you, bad king. I'm your servant, but I'll do the best I can to make sure you get what you have coming. You see how that typifies the Pharisee way? At the heart of it is a bad view of God. And incidentally, do you see how that threatens the Christian way? How many of us live in a kind of terror of God? You know, when the Scriptures talk about the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom, that's a respect. That's not a neurosis. That's not a fear of Him the way that you're afraid of like Norman Bates or something. Okay, He's not a bad person. It's a respect for His vast power and how big He is and, and what a wonder He is. The way you, you treat the ocean with respect. Because the flippancy about God is very dangerous. Foolishness towards God can break you. But the fear of the Lord leads you to the love of the Lord. Or it's not real fear of the Lord. This man has a neurosis about his king. And that's what Jesus is confronting. And his neurosis keeps him from freedom to truly be alive. Instead, he goes and buries in the ground what he should have been using to the king's glory. He was afraid to participate in life. He's all about management and control and make sure God doesn't hate me. Look, God does not hate you, but this man hates God. Don't be like him. It's dangerous. And so the king says, and this, by the way, is proof of that, because what, I already mentioned this, but what the king says to the other two guys is not, good job, I'm really impressed by how you performed. It's, well done, enter into my joy. Share with me. You know, your faithfulness is being rewarded by being a part of my joy. Celebrate with me. Be a part of my party. This is a good king, a surprisingly good king, shockingly for their culture. This master does not do this, but he does. The one servant is wrong. But what, what the king says is, you wicked and slothful servant, you didn't mean to be a hard man gathering where I had not sown or reaping where I had not scattered seed. He's like, that's who you think I am? This is what I'm like, huh? 
Because to the broken person, that's the only way they can know God. They live in a neurotic fear of God, and God has done everything to try and convince you otherwise. And if you're not convinced by Judgment Day, you're not going to be. He says, all right, that's who I am? Then you should have done differently than what you did. You should have done, at least put the money with the banker so that when he turned, I could have had it with interest. You know, you at least should have grown a little bit, but you didn't change at all. Because that's what the Pharisee way does to you. It doesn't change you. It leaves you with a heart that wants all the evil that you deny it. Jesus' way changes us through and through. We're transformed by the Lord. The Pharisee way doesn't. And there are Christians living the Pharisee way. God is saying, don't do that. Don't think of me as bad. Remember that I am good. How many times have I said it to you? Taste and see that the Lord is good. He calls you to trust Him, to move towards Him. He is your hope. And so we have this third picture. And here Jesus just... It's like, He's like, I've been telling you stories just to make sure that you know what I'm talking about. Let me just go ahead and tell you. When the King sits on His glorious throne... Okay, this is clearly a judgment scene, right? And he says, what's going to happen is that the king's going to go out. There's going to be sheep and goats all mixed up together. And the king's going to walk out there and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to put some on this side, some on that side. He's going to separate them out. Some are the saved and some are not. It's the separation of the two ways. Which way are you walking? Which way are you living? And note that when he says to the rewarded, the first thing he says is, Come you who are blessed by my Father. They've already been blessed. It isn't judgment where they get the blessing. It's been their life that led them to become a sheep. Look, we all start out as goats. Every one of us is a wicked creature when we enter Jesus' work. But we are transformed by the Lord, the power of God working in us. And we become different than we are because of the Lord. And so He says, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. That is cue of His way. They have lived Jesus' way. They have put their trust in God. They have put their trust in His redemptive work for them. And so they are blessed. And then He says, You can see the blessing for... I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now look, there are people who hear that and go, well, wait a minute, I guess we got to do good works to get into heaven. No, if you're blessed by the Father, that's what you look like. This is what Jesus' way leads us to become. And I will point out to you that those who walk by Jesus' way they are not aware of their own deeds. Because they're not paying attention to them. They aren't seeking, trying to be good. The Pharisee has to try to be good in order to convince God that they're worth loving, but the Christian knows they're loved. And so they're trying to seek God. And people who seek God end up doing good by mistake. They don't want to argue with Jesus. They're like, Lord, when did we do any of that? I didn't do anything. I never saw you and I never took care of you. I wish I had, but I didn't. Are you sure, Lord? It's because they're totally unaware of their own good actions. 
Because good actions don't come solely from their effort. They come from the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And He causes them and leads them into goodness. Now granted, they still have to choose it. But they're not paying attention to it because they don't think it's how they earn anything. Instead, it's just fruit. It's just good that they get to do with the Lord. And so they don't see it. And so, uh, so they're like, it just doesn't seem alright. I'm sure that... If, um, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong slide up, don't I? Anyway, the people who fail to do good, now they are very aware of their deeds. They know every good deed they've ever done because they think it has merit. And they're able to say, look at the good I did. I did do good and I never neglected you. If I'd had the opportunity, I would have been good to you. But that opportunity never showed up. And he's like, it showed up all around you. And if you had just pursued the Father, you also would have taken advantage of those things. But you didn't. You didn't. And so in front of us are these, these two ways. In, in each of these cases, the parable, the parable of the, the ten women and the parable of the talents and then this last story of the judgment scene, in all of them, these two ways are put in front of us. And it's a way of life that has led people to a different end. You know, I'm not much of a hell and, and brimstone, I couldn't even think of the word brimstone, <laughs> preacher. I don't do much of that. Why not? Because frankly, I think most of the church of Christ has had an overdose of that. To the point where we don't know if God is good or not. That's why we're so often afraid of it. It makes the Pharisee way very easy. It makes it so tempting and dangerous. But the truth is, the Lord is the one who puts the reality that there are two eternal destinies in front of us, and He does it over and over and over again. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has shaped the Gospel in such a way that it's very difficult to miss. He's saying, which way are you going to walk? Are you going to put your trust in God? Are you going to follow the Lord's Messiah? Are you going to seek discipleship and the help of the Holy Spirit? Or are you going to try and do the Christian walk without discipleship and without holiness? What are you going to do? Because there are two different ways. And they lead to two very different ends. And so I encourage each of us. And, and folks, this is not a sermon I preach to you. I, I really need to be sitting down. Toward which way am I walking? Where am I going with my life? Because there is an end that is glorious and only the Lord can do it. He is our Savior and we say that for a reason. We receive salvation. And we're cooperative, but we don't accomplish it. Only He does. But He is willing and those who walk with Him find redemption, not just in the afterlife, but already as a precursor in this one through their changed and transformed hearts. Now, in order to make this sermon entirely consistent, I can't look at you and determine how much work God's done in you, right? I don't know. Who knows where you would be but for the Lord? And you might be a much worse person, even if you're horrible to be around. If it weren't for God's work in you, you might be a whole lot meaner. But, folks, He changes us. Or you can go it alone. But you won't change. 
you'll run out of oil. You know, you'll have buried it in the ground. And you'll be going, <laughs> which, <laughs> which way of life are you pursuing? Toward which way am I moving? If you look at yourself and you go, you know what, I, I'm a mess. Uh, and I'm not trusting God to help me with that mess very much. I'm trying to prove myself to God. Well, God wants to help you out of that. He wants to save you from yourself. And if you look into your life today and you're like, you know, I need, I need the prayers of the saints. I need help to escape this trap I've put myself into. We want to pray for you. And if you came here today and you're carrying a big load, but it has nothing to do with what I've talked about, Jesus calls to you, lay your burdens down. Let my people love you. We want to lift you in prayer. And if you'll let us, we will. And if you're not following Jesus Christ, there is no better way of life than following Him. Come with us. If you're subject to the invitation, there's room right here. Why don't you come while we stand and sing?